Good evening, everyone, and welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral. My name is Marjorie Brown. I'm a prebendary of the cathedral and a parish priest in the diocese, and it's my privilege this evening to stand in for Canon Tricia Hillis as chair of this event. I'll introduce our speakers in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of these events before, let me explain how the evening will work. In a moment, Paula Gooder and Mark Oakley will explore different aspects of the cross, the scandal, the glory, and also what it means to take up our own cross. The evening will follow a slightly different path to our usual events. Paula is going to speak about the Bible, Mark about a poem, and they'll also talk together about each of the themes. The second half will be for your questions about the cross, surely the best known, most loved, uh, most misunderstood sign in all of human history. A wonderful subject to be gathering around tonight. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up and somebody will come and collect it. We'll be taking questions until about 7.40, so please keep them coming and keep them brief and keep them legible. Now, if you're a person with the skills of the millennial generation, we're also taking questions via Twitter using hashtag the cross. If you'd like to send us your question through your mobile, just type it in and include hashtag the cross and we will find it. Your questions will be sent up to me on the laptop here and I will put them to Paula and Mark. Do send us your questions whenever they occur to you at any point in the evening and do please send us lots of questions. We'll end at eight o'clock and there's a bookstall here on my left where you can buy the speaker's books and they will kindly um, sign copies for you at the table over there if you'd like to get a signed copy. In your programs, you'll find the readings for this evening's event, as well as information about our upcoming events with speakers including Rowan Williams and the new Bishop of London, Bishop Sarah Mullally. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers. Paula Gooder is one of the best-known biblical scholars and theologians at work today. Her day job is Director for Mission, Learning, and Development in the Diocese of Birmingham. She's been theologian in residence at the Bible Society, taught at theological colleges and universities, and is a lay reader. But my guess is most of us here will know her from her wonderful writing about the Bible. Her books about the Bible and contemporary Christianity are treasured by many people, and she has a great gift for bringing her deep scholarship into the service of faith in all its puzzling, compelling, contemporary mystery. It's a great ministry, and we're grateful for it. 
I know every time I've heard Paula speak, whether it's at Greenbelt Festival or a clergy conference, I've always taken away a fresh insight which has stayed with me. So we're hugely appreciative that she's coming to talk to us tonight. Mark Oakley is the Canon Chancellor here at the Cathedral, so it feels somewhat peculiar to be welcoming him to his own place. He oversees the visual arts program here and all the learning and outreach work, including the theology, ethics, and schools and families programs. I think many people think it's one of the best jobs in the Church of England. He's also a man of wide interests, and poetry comes very high on that list. Many of us here will have benefited from his teaching about how poetry can enrich and illuminate our faith. And you may especially know his wonderful book, The Splash of Words, Believing in Poetry, which I believe has just gone into a third impression, and I think is the book I've given away as a gift more often than any other book I've ever bought. He's also profoundly committed to human rights. He's a trustee of liberty, a patron of the Tell Mama project, which supports victims of anti-Muslim hate crime, and he's an ambassador for the charity Stop Hate UK, working to reduce hate crime of all sorts. Would you please join me in welcoming both our speakers? It's a great pleasure to be here this evening. As Marjorie has already said, this evening is a conversation. It's a conversation between Mark and I. It's a conversation between poetry and scripture. And again, as Marjorie has already said, at the second half of this evening, it will be a conversation between you and us and poetry and scripture. And we hope very much that you will enjoy the conversation. In terms of our opening conversation, Mark and I want to explore three themes. The first is the cross as glory, the second, the cross as scandal, and the third, taking up your own cross. So we'll start with the cross as glory. And I'll read the passage that I've chosen, which I will then use to begin to reflect on that, which you have in your handout, and is John 3, 14 to 21. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world 
and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. If you were to summarize the cross in John's Gospel, the word that you would most likely use is the word glory. John and glory and the cross has become a major theme in many people's minds. And indeed, if you have a look at artwork that connects John and the cross, you will see that in much of the artwork, you have reflections on the theme of glory and the cross. If you aren't very careful when you are reflecting on John and the cross, it is somewhat tempting to imagine that Jesus on Easter morning got up in John's ideas, dusted himself down and said, oh, that smarted a little. In John, it doesn't appear as though there is a lot of suffering. In John, it doesn't appear as though Jesus experienced all that much pain on the cross. So what is going on? What is John trying to communicate to us by his portrayal of the cross? I think John 3 begins to get you right into the heart of what's going on in John's gospel, in his understanding of Jesus and the cross. And in order to do that, we need to think a little bit about the word glory. The word glory is one of my favorite biblical words. It's a tiny word. And most of us, if I said to you, what do you think the word glory means? You would probably say, I do know what the word glory means. But then you might struggle a little bit to define it. Because the word glory, it communicates something. It alludes to something. It suggests things to us. But it's actually quite hard to tie down. If I had an hour, I could take you on a really satisfying, well, satisfying to me at any rate, trot through the Bible in which I could show you how the word glory is used, how it unfolds, and what it looks like. I don't have an hour. I have about 30 seconds. So I hope you'll excuse me if my trot is very quick. But there's something really important to understand about glory. If you go into the Old Testament and see the word glory being used, one of the fascinating things is to see how it is used when it's referring to human beings and not to God. One of the slightly annoying things about the way the translations work is when they use the word, the Hebrew word kavod, which is the word we use to translate glory, of human beings, they never translate it glory. So if you're interested in the English, you don't see the word glory when it's associated with human beings. But in short, when it is use of human beings, it means their reputation, who they really are as people. 
And in that observation, you understand what the word glory means of God. The word glory of God means who God really is, who you can understand of God. The reason why the word glory then accumulates ideas of shininess and fire and those kinds of things are because God is a God of great shininess, to put it um, in a rather unpoetic way. God shines in the world. But who God is, is a God um, who reveals glory, who he really is. If we think then of John's gospel very swiftly, we notice that in John's signs, his seven signs, where Jesus turns water into wine, where he heals people, where he feeds the 5,000, those, we are told, told, reveal Jesus' glory. In other words, they tell us who Jesus really is. They tell us of his generosity, of his creation, of his ability to feed us, of his care for creation. When you know that, it suddenly begins to make a huge amount of sense to talk about the cross as glory. On the cross, for the first time ever, we understand deeply who Jesus really is. And it loops us back beautifully to this passage, John 3, and you will know it so, so well, John 3, 16. For God loved the world in this way. It's a better translation of John 3.16. That he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. What does the cross tell us about God? What does the cross tell us about Jesus? It tells us of love and love and love. And that is why in John's gospel, glory and the cross begin to make a whole load of sense. In the cross, we understand truly who Jesus really was. From the Dream of the Rood. Then that most noble tree spoke It was long since, I yet remember it, that I was hewn at Holt's end, moved from my stem. Strong fiends seized me there, worked me for spectacle, cursed ones lifted me. On shoulders men bore me there, then fixed me on hill, fiends enough fastened me. Then saw I Mankind's Lord, come with great courage when he would mount on me. Then dared I not against the Lord's word bend or break when I saw earth's fields shake. All fiends I could have felled, but I stood fast. The young hero stripped himself, he God Almighty, strong and stout-minded, he mounted high gallows, bold before many, when he would loose mankind. I shook when that man clasped me. I dared still not bow to earth, fall to earth's fields, but had to stand fast. Rude was I reared, 
I lifted a mighty king, Lord of the heavens, dared not to bend. With dark nails they drove me through, on me those sores are seen, open malice wounds. I dared not scathe anyone. They mocked us, both, we two together, all wet with blood I was, poured out from that man's side after ghost he gave up. Much have I borne on that hill of fierce fate. I saw the God of hosts harshly stretched out. Darknesses had wound round with clouds, the corpse of the wielder, bright radiance. A shadow went forth dark under heaven. All creation wept. King's fall lamented. Christ was en route. To have five minutes on how poets depict the glory of the cross brings to mind Quentin Crisp's comforting words that if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. <laughs> the suffering of the Messiah and his asphyxiation on an instrument of torture cried out for explanation, as we've just been hearing, and early Christian writers explored this startling fact of the Messiah's death that didn't make any easy sense. They were exploring, in the words of T.S. Eliot in his four quartets, why, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. And as time moved on, no theory of atonement was ever declared definitive by the church. The creeds tell us simply, Christ suffered under Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And because of this openness to interpretation, to the search for meaning, it's a desire, as it were, to see something in the dark, the poets begin their work. And they open up large spaces for response rather than one fixed, defined interpretation. Now, this will infuriate the neatly dogmatic but as St. Ambrose reminds us, it did not suit God to save his people through logic. <laughs> Why I think the poets are important is that they understand that revelation always reveals, but always reveals, shows us truth, and then calls us back to mystery. And when it comes to any matter of interpreting faith, God must never become the object of our knowledge because God should always be the cause of our wonder. And the poets come and they open windows of our knowledge in our heart and in our mind and they explore with depth and complexity and often contradiction that wonder. And as Padre Cotuma puts it, Whatever the death of Jesus Christ means, you should never be able to write it on a fridge magnet. <laughs> the poem I just read from comes probably from the early 8th century, one of the very earliest Christian poems in English, and a long extract from it can still be seen in runic form carved on a cross in Dumfries. It's been given the title, The Dream of the Rude, 
Rude, of course, was the original uh, Old English word for the instrument of Christ's death. The words cross and crucifix came later. And in this poem, of which we heard only a part of its 156 lines, and whose author remains anonymous, the narrator describes this strange dream of a wonderful tree covered with gems. And he's aware of how wretched he is in comparison. But then he sees that amidst all the beautiful stones, the tree is stained with blood. The tree then speaks and tells us that it was cut down to bear a criminal, but that a young warrior who is Lord climbed up onto him. The image of Christ in this poem is that of an Anglo-Saxon hero warrior. Indeed, the poet actually uses a native phrase for Christ that is once applied to that other hero, Beowulf. And the poem builds up in crescendo to the true identity of this hero who comes to the tree. The rude tells us how the warrior strips himself for the fight, hastens to climb the tree, and then rests limb-weary after the exhaustion of single combat. He is a lord of victories. So the suffering in this poem is caught up with victory. <coughs> victory over what? Victory over whom isn't actually spelt out. But what's striking about the poem is that it offers no explanation or theory as to how that victory and suffering somehow converge. The impression given is that the victory interprets the suffering, but we can't quite see how. All we do know here is that the passion is not understood as tragedy, but as a fulfilling of divine purpose. Here we have a Lord who does courageously what has to be done. And in fact, in some very early Christian art, Christ is often seen climbing up a ladder onto the cross, freely taking on himself the cost of a savior, rather like a fireman going up the steps to the window through which he will end his life. As another early poem of this same period says, man stole the fruit but I must climb the tree. So here, another reminder that in these early English language poems, the cross is often depicted as a sort of loyal retainer forced to participate in this execution. But Jesus is no helpless victim. He's a glorious hero. And if you want to use a contemporary comparison, He's being enlisted by God for a cosmic regime change, giving his life as a peacekeeper. This is the cross that Christ, the very early English poets say, could not ever avoided or fled from. He goes to it with purpose. He doesn't think twice because he wants to protect us, love us, fight for us, die for us. That's how much we're caught up in the being and love of God. And the Anglo-Saxon poet of the dream of the rood is in awe of that tree that was cut down and raised up, but who never forgot that day when he saw the God of hosts stretched out on rood.
take just a few moments to reflect on what we've just heard. And um, I think when I read that poem, uh, the, the uh, poem about, of the rude speaking, I'm always reminded of what I think of as the sort of Narnian theory of the atonement, you know, the, the person who comes to rescue us, the, the ransomer, the hero, the one who, yes, climbs the ladder. And I was struck also by Paula mentioning that John's gospel really doesn't seem to make a lot of suffering. I wonder, do you think in our modern day thinking about the cross, we are too much involved in the sort of medieval and reformation emphasis on suffering, Jesus' human suffering, and do we miss some of this heroic, you know, heroic action, this glory, this victory? Possibly, quite possibly. I mean, for me, one of the glorious things about tracing the cross through the New Testament mm. is you get a mosaic. There, I wouldn't say that any one of the pieces of the mosaic contradicts any one of the others, but you do get wildly contrasting images of the cross, um, its effect, um, its impact, um, how it can reaches to us. And for me, that's, to use my word, glory. That's, that's the glory of it, is that you don't have an answer. You have answers. And I think one of the things that you then begin to see is that the cross has so many different meanings um, that they don't want to settle on one, as Mark was saying. Mm -hmm. um, certainly what happened after the Anglo-Saxon period, when we move then into the medieval poets, you get a very heavy emphasis on the suffering. Mm. Jesus becomes, in, in some depictions in art, literally the plague victim mm. suffering. And this is when uh, his mother mm. starts to figure as well at the mm. foot, and you get this tenderness, this human suffering, rather than a glorious hero. Uh, but I, I, I agree that there are lots of models of the atonement, and I'm sure they're going to pop up in the conversation later. My, my feeling is that at the heart of each of them, something very serious is being said. But if you ever take any one of them and think that's the complete whole, something starts to go wrong. <laughs> no fridge magnets. <laughs> no fridge magnets. And that's, of course, how a poem works. Yes, yes. Mm. Well, I think we should move on now move on. to the mm -hmm. scandal, if we may. So our second section is reflecting on the cross as scandal. We start at one end with a theme that trips us up a little bit, that um, the cross is glory, we now move to the other end of the cross as scandal. And the best place to look for that theme in the New Testament is, of course, 1 Corinthians. So our reading is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 to 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. As we've got John in our minds still, um, just notice 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22. Jews demand signs. They got a lot of them in John's gospel. But what is striking about what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 is that 
they got the signs they didn't really want, or at least to start with, they got the signs they wanted. But by the time you get to the cross is a sign you would not want. And one of the fascinating things that has happened over Christian tradition, and I'm far from the first person to observe this, but is how we have taken something which is deeply repulsive and offensive and made it the symbol of our faith. And we could again spend a long time reflecting on that movement, how we've got to the stage where I haven't got mine on today, but I would ordinarily have a cross hung around my neck. Have we got to that point where as Christians, we have taken that which is deeply repulsive and made it the symbol of who we are? I would say we get there through the lens of 1 Corinthians 1. But let's just stop for a moment and reflect on the nature of the offensiveness. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is, in the NRSV translation, is a stumbling block. The Greek word, you may like to know, is the Greek word scandalon. And you can translate that as stumbling block or you can translate it deeply repulsive. I'd kind of like the second translation, really, because it captures something of what Paul is trying to get to here. The real challenge is trying to work out why it's deeply offensive to Jews and only foolishness to Gentiles. The answer is probably that it's deeply offensive to Jews and Gentiles and it's foolishness to Jews and Gentiles, but that doesn't sound quite so rhetorically pleasing. So he's um, split them apart. What you've got to bear in mind are a few things. The Roman society, like many ancient societies, was a society built on the honor and shame culture. Your ultimate goal in living in Roman society was to seek honor and wherever you could, avoid shame. That was the underlying functioning of society. It is interesting, in the West, we have lost that. It's not lost in other cultures, but in the West, and we no longer really function in an honor-shame way, in the way that they did in the ancient world, in the way that still happens in much of the Middle East and in much of Africa. So just imagine for a moment in a culture which is driven above all by finding honor by holding up something that could make you hold your head that little bit higher, that would make people admire you. For this odd group of people to start come and talking about the very worst thing, the most shameful thing that could possibly happen. You may remember from um, Roman society that Roman citizens could not be crucified mostly. Um, you have to have a rider to that. But it was accepted that you wouldn't crucify a Roman citizen because it was too shaming. A Roman citizen was somebody to be honoured and admired, so you wouldn't crucify them. So just imagine what it was like to find this small group of people suddenly saying, the leader of our faith, 
the person we look up to above all things, our Messiah, the one who has come to save us, has been shamed above all things. No wonder it was deeply offensive to Jews and to Gentiles. And of course, it was utter foolishness. We just stop for a moment on that other word, the word foolishness. Again, you may know the Greek word. The Greek word is the Greek word moria, um, from which we get our English word moron. Um, it is absolutely, and it was incidentally, as offensive as our English word moron. It was that which was utterly incomprehensible, utterly nonsensical. And that was what the earliest Christians started saying about the one they followed, about their Messiah, about the person who had come to save them. No wonder the cross was deeply offensive. No wonder the cross was absolutely insane in their eyes. And that is why Paul goes on to talk about God's wisdom. For me, one of the glorious things about the New Testament and about much of Christian faith is that actually it is a paradox. So much of it is paradoxical. The only way in which you encounter truth is to recognize that that which is deeply offensive brings true glory. That that which is utterly insane is the deepest wisdom you will ever find. And in that is the mystery. And that, incidentally, as I'm sure you know, is why we do wear crosses around our necks. Because we believe so profoundly in the importance of that paradox. What I think we're not very good about is talking about that paradox enough. And for me, one of the interesting things is how do we reclaim the deep offense of the cross while recognizing that because it is so very offensive, it is right at the center of everything that we believe in. At a Calvary near the Anchor by Wilfred Owen. One ever hangs where shelled roads part. In this war, he too lost a limb, but his disciples hide apart, and now the soldiers bear with him. Near Golgotha strolls many a priest, and in their faces there is pride that they were flesh-marked by the beast by whom the gentle Christs denied. The scribes on all the people shove and bawl allegiance to the state. But they who love the greater love lay down their life. They do not hate. I suppose if you point to the cross as a sign of glory, you might tend to see the cross as some sort of answer. But what happens when it becomes the question? What happens to poetry when not only the scandal of Christ's death is reflected on, but also the scandal of this life that we undergo? The scandal of innocent suffering, of pain, loss, tragedy. 
The poetry of the 20th century sees the cross very differently from the steed of some Anglo-Saxon warrior. That century of the Somme and Auschwitz, Hiroshima, Rwanda, asks, well, amongst the death of so many, what's so important about the death of one 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem? But it might be that it's exactly because there are so many that statistics can't be imagined that the death of that one still brings home to the heart the death of all. And so many 20th century writers have still been drawn to Christ's cross. And the soldier poets of the First World War, for instance, such as Wilfred Owen, use the crucified to distill a sense of what they were doing there in the trenches and who they were becoming there. Wilfred Owen speaks of Christ actually being in no man's land on the cross. And in the poem we just heard, he sees a crucifix in France placed significantly at a crossroads, roads that lead to a cross, that has been damaged in, note the word again carefully, crossfire. Here, Owen, like the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross, is able to see the righteous one when all the chief priests of organized religion are busy blessing armies. He sees the real power in the teachings of the man who's crucified, the man of sorrows, who understands what Owen and all his mates and colleagues are living through as they descend into hell. Christ is here less adored than respected. There's a mutuality, a recognition of the greater power of love, even when put to death, and of the greater integrity of the peace-loving, even when butchered, going over the top. And the poet, Robert Graves, after the war, wrote that even when respect for organized religion died amongst the men, reverence for Jesus as their fellow sufferer, he said, remained. Others began to wonder whether God suffers. In this war, he too, writes Owen, has lost a limb. Such a move towards believing that God suffers can be found later in words by people like Bill Vanston, W.H. Vanston. Do you remember? Therefore he who shows us God helpless hangs upon the tree, and the nails and crown of thorns tell of what God's love must be. Here is God, no monarch he, throned in easy state to reign. Here is God, whose arms of love, aching, spent, the world sustain. The glory here is found in the divinity that makes humanity humane and is true to the loving purposes in the face of the scandal of evil and destruction. On the cross, love is being itself, even if the world calls it failure. Saint Maximus once said, the cross is the judgment of judgment. One of the reflections of the atonement that has drawn people in the 20th century out of all this reflection on war 
and pain and loss is that of Christ, the scapegoat. Knowing that human beings like to identify a common enemy, usually an outsider, to keep their group together, an embodiment of evil on which they can throw all their violence, we find Jesus asking his followers to break the cycles of retributive hatred and to learn to touch the untouchable. So instead of the one being castigated by the 99, he tells a story of leaving the 99 to find the one. He dies as the unjustly persecuted scapegoat who willingly takes our violence on himself to break the circle and stop others being scapegoated, praying even as he dies for forgiveness, not revenge. He absorbs hate without passing it on, and he bids his followers do the same so that the mechanisms of projected hate are broken. He dies as we must live. The scandal remains when we don't. Robert Graves again actually wrote a poem about Jesus alone in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights only having there one friend, a little goat, the scapegoat, who had been sent out on the Day of Atonement into the desert and under the stars of dark in the lonely nights, Jesus and the little goat kept themselves warm. We've heard a lot from both of you just now about paradox and how we need to embrace that if we're going to make any sense of the scandal. Do we need to do a better sell on paradox in an age when the new atheists want things very cut and dried, fundamentalists of all descriptions want simple answers? Is that a, a challenge for Christians in the 21st century? Well, I always say, for all your doctrinal headaches, take paradox. <laughs> uh, sort of sorts it all out, really. Uh, but of course, the word paradoxa means uh, uh, against expectation, mm -hmm. which of course is exactly what faith ought to be. Or it means alongside glory. Or alongside uh -huh. glory, yes. Which would be rather nice too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, I think. Um, uh, sorry. You mm. just... No, I just I I think you're right. Um, but I would want to resist um, falling into the trap because I think for me that that desire for certainty it comes out of anxiety and fear and I find in the paradox um, the mystery a deep truth a pulsating truth which is far greater than words can communicate and therefore for me it is that how do we begin to recapture a paradox that can begin to make sense for people of those deep life questions which are so important. I like alongside glory. That's a wonderful translation. Mm. I think because of time, we'll need to we move straight on to taking up some cross. So our third and final section for this evening is taking up your cross. I don't know how comfortable you have been so far reflecting on the cross as glory, the cross as scandal. If you were in any way comfortable, you need to stop now. <laughs> because taking up your cross really drives us to the most 
difficult aspect, personally for us, of our engagement with the cross. I will explain why in a moment. First, we'll read Luke 9. Then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. <laughs> I often wonder what those earliest disciples thought they were signing up for. You know, when they were in the boat and Jesus comes along and says, come follow me. What did they think was in it for them? Why did they go so quickly? We get little hints of it through the Gospels. You know, those little moments where James and John say, can we sit at your right and your left hand when you come into your, your glory? And Jesus says, oh yes, you can, um, but you have no idea what you're asking me. We get the sense that actually the disciples thought they were signing up for rather a good deal. They were going to be with the Messiah. You know that one who was going to drive out the Romans, who was going to bring glory. I use the word advisedly, but in a different form. He was going to bring glory to his people. Redemption was coming. The world was going to be turned on its head. And they were going to be there at the center celebrating it. Well, they were a little bit right, weren't they? Unfortunately, they were also quite a bit wrong. And I wonder what it felt like for them when they realized precisely what it was that they had signed up for. All the evidence of the New Testament tells us that they didn't realize it even while Jesus was still with them. They didn't even realize it after he'd risen from the death, dead. The suggestion of Acts is that they didn't quite get it until Acts 2, the sending of the Holy Spirit. But there are hints, there are plenteous hints for them all the way through the Gospels. And for me, one of the most striking ones comes in each one of the Gospels, though interestingly not in John, where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. During Holy Week, year after year, one of the things that I remember reflecting on is how awful it must have been for Jesus to go through the events of Holy Week, building up to the great climax of Good Friday. But somewhat slowly, probably just as slowly as for the earliest disciples, it's taken me a really long time to put the last piece of the puzzle in place and to recognize that during Holy Week, as we accompany Jesus to the cross, actually, we are accompanying ourselves also 
to the cross. It's nice to put Jesus out there and say, poor him, how awful it must have been for him. The point of Luke 9 and the other passage that are parallel to it is Jesus is saying, if you actually want to follow me, it's not an out there journey, it's an in here journey. Of course, the real difficulty, and one which Christian tradition has never really solved, is precisely what does it mean to take up your cross? There are times during Christian history when Christians have been perhaps a little bit overmuch in love with taking up their cross. If you read some of the texts of the early fathers, you have what I like to call the bring it on theology. You know, come on, I can deal with almost anything. Slightly masochistic in tone. I think we've rather withdrawn from that these days, and we're right at the other end of the spectrum. And we'll take up our cross in so tiny a way that it won't really inconvenience us in any significant way, because of course Jesus wasn't calling us to that, was he? We somehow need to get the balance right between masochism and it having no impact at all. There's a, a, a big middle ground for us to reflect on. And actually, what it really means for us to take up our cross, and you'll probably be aware that Luke, controversially among the gospel writers, adds in that little word, daily. And that's why I chose Luke 9 and not Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark simply says, take up your cross. Luke says, do it daily. It somehow maybe dilutes the call a little bit, because surely you can't die every day. Or can you? And that's what Luke begins to unravel for us, is what does it mean to die to loving myself? What does it mean to die to putting myself absolutely first? There is, I think, a great call, a great challenge behind Jesus' words. We need to give ourselves permission. We need to challenge ourselves to hear that challenge again and again and again. Shane Claiborne, who is um, a social activist and Christian in the United States, has said really strikingly that the problem for young people and Christianity is not that we ask of them too much, but we ask of them too little. If we want people to hear the call of the gospel, we shouldn't dilute it. We should make it as hard and as challenging as it really was, because that was Jesus' call. And surely we might as well follow the call of Jesus as he ushered it, as he um, uttered it, rather than in the wishy-washy diluted form sometimes we're tempted to, to, to listen to it as. So take up your cross. I'd like to challenge you this week during Holy Week to reflect through the week, actually, what does that mean for you? To lay down your life so that you might save it. I measure every grief I meet by Emily Dickinson. I measure every grief I meet with narrow, probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. I wonder if they bore it long or did it just begin. 
I could not tell the date of mine, it feels so old a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try and whether could they choose between it would not be to die. I note that some, gone patient long, at length renew their smile, an imitation of a light that has so little oil. I wonder if when years have piled some thousands on the harm that hurt them early, such a lapse could give them any balm. Or would they go on aching still through centuries of nerve, enlightened to a larger pain in contrast with the love the grieved are many, I am told. There is the various cause. Death is but one and comes but once and only nails the eyes. There's grief of want and grief of cold, a sort they call despair. There's banishment from native eyes in sight of native air. And though I may not guess the kind correctly, yet to me, a piercing comfort it affords in passing Calvary to note the fashions of the cross and how they're mostly worn, still fascinated to presume that some are like my own. Ooh, Emily Dickinson. Born in 1830, dying in 1886, living most of her life as a recluse. Um, published only six poems in her lifetime, but on her death, um, over 1,700 poems were found stashed away, many of them sewn together, uh, as indeed many uh, sermons of the time were sewn together in, in a similar fashion. And these um, amazing poetic forms that she has. I always think it's uh, th this use of dashes and, uh, and pauses. Uh, it's a bit like Morse code coming through uh, from another foreign land. I mean, if you try and copy out her verse on your computer, autocorrect will go completely bananas. <laughs> In tone, she is the spider and never the fly. There's a carnival of world life in her themes, and it is really an electric storm, lightning and dense air. All these poems often addressed uh, in hymn tones about God, but also expressing honest pain and doubt and despair. And in this poem, she begins by telling us that whenever confronted by a sad person, she tries to determine the scale of their grief very carefully. She me measures this from her own grief, wondering whether it may be less uh, than her own. She wonders how long the person's been grieving, her own pain being impossible to date. She wonders if they find life painful and if given the choice whether they would choose death. She notices that some whose grief is older manage to make a show of happiness again, but it's clear that the happiness isn't that deep. And she then questions whether time heals and doubts it. She presents the alternative that even after centuries of nerve, they go on aching still. There is what she calls the grief of want, lacking something or someone, despair, perhaps depression, there's grief of cold, loneliness, banishment, isolation. She knows that she often misunderstands the sadness of others 
and then comments, yet to me, a piercing comfort it affords in passing Calvary to note the fashions of the cross and how they're mostly worn, still fascinated to presume that some are like my own. And that phrase, piercing comfort, might be written for this evening. The piercing of Christ, the comfort of the love that bears it. Piercing comfort, placing wounds and fractures alongside the God who shares these from the inside and embraces them as he embraces us. The first lines of many of Emily Dickinson's poems reveal this love and battle with God. She was very much unafraid to question and unashamed to adore. And that's very typical of a lot of 19th century writing and poetry. Another 19th century woman poet, Christina Rossetti, perhaps better known for writing In the Bleak Midwinter and Goblin Market, she also wrote many devout poems, similar period. <coughs> uh, and this is very typical. I'll just give you a few lines from one of them, written in 1876, that she is looking to God to save her, not from the devil, not from punishment. She's looking for God to save her from herself. God strengthen me to bear myself, that heaviest weight of all to bear. It continues, God harden me against myself, this coward with pathetic voice who craves for ease and rest and joys, myself arch-traitor to myself, my hollowest friend, my deadliest foe, my clog whatever road I go, yet one there is can curb myself, can roll the strangling load from me, break off the yoke and set me free. A little bit different from in the bleak midwinter. <laughs> the point is, for these poets, there are crosses in our lives, full stops that close us down, and the cross is somehow a piercing comfort that the full stop might be transformed into a comma. At the moment, people speak of spirituality as it's the same thing as having a massage while listening to wind chimes. <laughs> For the Christian, spirituality is a horrible thing. It is an assault on the ego, a deconstruction of all the hoarding we make ourselves out of over time in order to discover through distillation something of your soul. To take up that cross is a way known by many poets who are the antennae of the inner life. And the most striking jolt in that poem we just heard is when Dickinson creates a rhyme between two words, me, Calvary. We're going to go straight to questions from the floor. We've had some very interesting ones already, but uh, I'll just remind you that for the next 10 minutes or so, it's still possible to write questions on your program, hold them up, and they will be collected and passed up to us. Uh, but I want to start with one um, 
It relates to really both of the last two um, talks about the scandal and cross-shaped lives now. Um, somebody has written, in our modern world where lives are lived online and laws have been implemented to protect people from shame, like revenge porn, could the image of the cross be revitalized? And it may have been the same person or someone else, but a related question, isn't some of the best and most memorable campaigning done by minorities, the ones where minorities have reclaimed their stigmatization? In response to the second one, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is, isn't there? I mean, I think there is something very profound about the recognition, um, sometimes you use the, the phrase, the cruciform. Mm -hmm. So a cruciform life, one that shows through its very being um, the pain, the suffering, the challenge of the cross. And there is something in that which is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, well, there are so many things we haven't touched on this evening, but one which is really striking is the revolutionary heart of the cross. That it, it isn't just about suffering, it's about suffering that transforms the world. It's not just about glory, it's a glory that transforms the world. And that's why actually to get the balance in taking up your cross, to have the proper cruciform life, it's a cruciform life that brings a transformation. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. Mm -hmm. I think there's something in that um, which I think is really important. I, the word shame uh, mentioned there is, a, is an increasingly important, worrying word in our own day, I think. Guilt, of course, is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. And that goes very deep. Um, what, of course, I've always found uh, beautiful about the earlier depictions of the, of the crucifixion is that Jesus cries out, in despair, where are you? Where are you? And that, of course, is where many of us are when we have shame, yeah. is where am I? Uh, do I deserve to be here? Is, is there anybody there that might love me for who I am? Because if you don't love me for who I am, actually, it's all I've got. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I find so moving in the crucifixion story is that that identification of Christ with your deepest despair actually is the moment in Christian faith that says God has never been closer. Yes. Right. Thank you. Can I just ask mm. a quick, because mm. I said boldly, <coughs> following various social scientists writing about the New Testament, that we're not an honor shame culture. Mm. And what you were just saying has made me wonder whether I now disagree with myself. <laughs> I, we're definitely a shame culture. Mm. I think the, the interesting question is, are we an honor-shame culture? Mm. Mm. Have, have we, have we un overbalanced so that we know about shame? Do we know enough about honor? Mm. Well, I don't know. Certainly a lot of the voices that come at us from the adverts are all telling us that we are... Uh, not measuring up to great standards, mm. so we all feel instantly yes. put down. Mm. And all these competition... I'm so bored of all these competitive shows that are making us all gladiatorial, mm. so that only mm. one will be the true cake-maker extraordinaire, <laughs> and everybody else will be shamed as being completely crap. And, uh, and, and that, I mean, I'm using a silly example, but but that is coming at us each and every way. We are being made not citizens, but competitors. Yeah. 
And that leads to shame yes. because there's always losers and one winner. Mm -hmm. And um, if anything the church can offer at the moment, it is uh, an antidote to that mentality. Thank you. Going in a slightly different direction, um, somebody's asking, how helpful do you find the words of the popular modern worship song that say, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied? Off you go, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Um, as I said at the beginning, I think that um, there are a lot of models around uh, and that at the heart of each model of atonement, there is something very important being said. In the one that stresses the wrath of God, I think what's being stressed there that is important is that sin is a serious business mm -hmm. and that justice is a serious business. Uh, and therefore, it's incorporated also into our spiritual life and into the divine life. What I don't like, of course, is that it, uh, as Steve Chalk has said, ends up sounding like cosmic child abuse. Mm. And it's not the God I hear Jesus teaching. You know, it, let's take one of his mm. teachings, mm. The, um, let's say the, the prodigal son. Mm. You know, where is the wrath of God in that picture? <laughs> He's, he's working out what he's going to say. He's trying to put it all right. He he's got himself together. He turns around. His father's halfway down the road. His arms are out, just as they are on the cross. Uh, so I have a worry about the picture of God that mm -hmm. can come out of that. But I still would say, yeah, sin is a serious business and has consequences that need reflecting on and putting right. Mm -hmm. But what image of God is also being construed there? You probably know that um, the suggested fix for the phrase that some people don't like, a lot of people don't like, is that the love of God is satisfied rather than the wrath of God is satisfied. You probably also know that the author of the song doesn't like the fix. And I think, for me, it, it's two sides of the same coin. Um, I never understood anything about the wrath of God until I became a parent. I get wrath much more now than I used to. And it's, it's, it's a wrath, and I think wrath is the word to use because it is a wrath that emerges out of love. I'm not that wrathful about people I don't really care about. And there is something about that absolute love of a child that says, I expect better of you than this. Um, this is what I am looking for. Um, and therefore, personally, I disagree with the author's lack of like of the fix, because actually I would want to equally sing the love of God and therefore the wrath of God. I mean, it would spoil the scanning of the song, song completely, wouldn't it? If you could put both words in, because I think it's a wrath that comes out of love and a love that leads into wrath. Um, but as Mark says, um, I also would want to place alongside that lots and lots of other images about what we think is going on with the cross. Um, that's one, um, and it brings a certain um, way of viewing the world, but I think there are other ones that we need to make sure we balance it up with as well. Thank you. A parent told me yesterday, talking about being, having mm. children and having wrath, she said, uh, as a parent, uh, she's never taken so many aspirin in her life. <laughs> and she said she's come to take the instructions very seriously, especially the part that says, keep away from children. Yeah. <laughs>
good advice. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about pictures and images, and we've got a couple of questions um, about visual representation. Um, one of them is, some Christians will have nothing to do with the image of Christ on the cross, the crucifix. They say we're, East, we're Easter people, resurrection people. Do we run the risk of racing past the suffering to get to the glory if we avoid that image? And, and somebody else has asked, doesn't the church um, need to have contemporary interpretive visual reminders of the cross to help us meditate on the full stop being transformed into a comma. So I'm, it's a little bit about visual images mm. of crucifixion. I've been to many, many art exhibitions in my life. Many, many, many. Um, but there's only one I can still tell you my top 10 favorite paintings in and that's Seeing Salvation, mm -hmm. which many people will yes. remember from the year 2000. And there is something, I can still remember the feelings I had, kind of the overwhelming emotion of going round and looking at the wide variety of images of, mm. um, and, and interestingly, what I, what I remembered until I read up on it more recently was that the, the paintings were all of the crucifixion or the act of redemption, they, they're not. Actually, the exhibition was of the icons of Jesus's life, the attempt to depict Jesus in imagery. But the ones I remembered were all around the crucifixion and what happened around um, the atonement and what that means. And so I would absolutely agree with the importance of depicting and imagery and trying to capture the affective and emotive impact um, through art. Absolutely agree with that. And um, I also agree with the, the attempt to try and make it disturbing. Um, there is a hugely controversial um, depiction in, in, done in a number of ways and where um, known as Christa, mm -hmm. where you don't have the male Christ on the cross, but a, a woman instead. And some people love it, some people hate it. It's kind of in, inevitably provo provocative. I loved it because what it did was brought back the scandal of the cross again. Um, and there is something I think about how do we begin to capture and recapture that depth of scandal. Um, and if I can just add a little PS onto the back, I also agree with that first question about balancing Good Friday and Easter Sunday. There are some Christians who are just Easter Sunday Christians, there are some Christians who are just Good Friday Christians, and how do we actually get those two held in tension is the crucial thing. Um, for me, the whole point of salvation, Jesus, there would be no point to salvation if Jesus were still dead, because we'd just be freed from without being, being freed for, but of course, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead without being dead, so therefore you need the two together and actually the heart of salvation is we are freed from and then we are freed for and then it starts to make sense. When uh, I was responsible for overseeing the, the installation of the Bill Viola um, video art um, piece on uh, the martyrs and uh, I had three green ink angry letters, um, only three actually, uh, one from somebody who'd never seen it uh, and the two others, one of them said it's a scandal. You shouldn't be depicting suffering in a church. 
Um, I didn't uh, talk about where we begin, but anyway, but I was sitting here, of course, looking down, and there are two uh, depictions, as you'll see when you go out, by Jerry Judah, two white crosses that are based on the white graves of the First World War across Europe. That's what they're based on, but built onto them are the cityscapes of Syria, Aleppo. And Jerry put little, little detonators in there and blew them up so that they are actually destroyed cityscapes. And the cities of Aleppo and Syria are actually built where the wounds would be on the cross. Mm. So I think we can still be imaginative in the way we try and show the suffering of our present time, because if you look at those, it just looks like turning on the 10 o'clock news, actually. Mm the sufferings of our present time with um, the cross, but we have to do it in ways that are fresh quite often because, I'm sorry to say, the aestheticization of the crucifix means that people don't actually look at it. They just think, oh, it's, it's crucifix. You have to find ways of saying, no, 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 no. This, this, is, this is asphyxiation. This is public execution. This is the death penalty. Uh, and then people, particularly younger people, go, oh, right. And that probably relates to a question somebody said, what's the modern equivalent of the cross visually? Perhaps it is Syria. It's mm. um, the suffering we see on the news. Um, mm. Somebody's also asked, in relation to what you just said, you know, we're freed for because Jesus died and then mm. rose. Could we have been saved without the cross, without crucifixion? Mm. <laughs> Small question, <laughs> teensy-weensy teensy question. Um, possibly, mm. but we weren't, mm -hmm. would be my response. Um, because God, my, one, one of the things that I believe with every fiber of my being is God is always unexpected. So if we, if we ask a dis different question, were it to happen again, would it happen in the same way? Mm -hmm. um, almost certainly not because God likes to surprise us. Uh, so I think that was how God chose for redemption to happen within the world then. Um, it only needs to happen once, so we don't need to ask the question of what would happen if it happened again. Um, so I, I don't think that the, the, the cross was the only way that we could have been saved, but it was the only way we were saved. Mm -hmm. um, and there I wriggle on my hook and stop. <laughs> Well, I can only really speak as a Christian, which is that for me, Jesus is the body language of God. Mm -hmm. And that body uh, is inescapably um, linked to the cross. And therefore, my understanding of God, my, my glimpse of God, as it were, is seen only through that lens. And, and that's the God who I believe saves. Mm -hmm. So that's my narrative, that's my faith. Uh, and that's the only way I can speak. That does not mean I do, I, other people will have images of God which are saving for them, but that's mine. This one's a little bit different, um, but perhaps also about imagery in a way. Could you elaborate on the typology of the cross as the inverse of the tree of the Garden of Eden? Very mm. popular theme in mm. much medieval writing. Mm. I'm tempted to say, which tree? Oh. <laughs> because 
as you probably know, there were two, mm. which are very, very striking. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm -hmm. and there is the tree of life. Mm -hmm. um, one of my you know, little conundrums I like to chew over is what would have happened if Adam and Eve had cunningly eaten the fruit of the tree of life before they ate the ah. fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil? Would um, they then have, within the narrative, um, had eternal life? Um, again, it didn't happen that way, so we don't have to worry about that too much. Um, but I think there is, so I think the, the reason why I'm doing that is that, yes, there is a typology of an inverse between the knowledge of good and evil and the cross and the tree of life and the cross, and they're both very rich for further reflection. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, is that ability to be able to understand the world as God sees it. The inverse being the cross, the cruciform signs of love, is the inverse, that's mm. seeing the world as God sees it. The tree of life is that which gives eternal life, the cross is the suffering means by which that happened. So, yes, but I would want both trees um, to be my inverse. I was thinking of the garden that has these mm -hmm. trees in. Is, is the same garden where God was saying, where are you? Which, of course, mm -hmm. is exactly what Jesus is saying yeah. uh, alone on the cross. Where are you? Uh, I was also looking at this mosaic here, which has um, the cross of Christ which is sort of coming into bud, uh, blossoming uh, as a new creation is um, fertilized by his blood. Uh, and George Herbert, when he was, um, when he knew that time was short, he had never published any of his poems, of course, in his life, only Latin ones, none of the English ones. And he carefully placed them in, a, in an order that he, he, he took very seriously. Uh, so, of course, he puts love as the last one, because love must be the last word for the Christian. But, for instance, he puts his poem, The Cross, above his poem called The Flower, mm. just as you get in, yeah. in artistic depictions, that at the foot of the cross, uh, flowers begin to to burst into bloom, uh, and there is a, is a hope of a, of a new creation, a new Eden mm. being born. And um, I've, always, uh, I've always been taken by the fact that Herbert, in those last days of his, was so carefully thinking all these sort of things through, but of course I, I love the fact that love is the last word. Mm. We've had a, a couple of questions around uh, whether the cross is a personal act for us, or taking up our cross as individuals, or is it about social justice, is it about acting collectively? Um, what would you say about that, especially with relation to young people who want to do mm. so much? I'm going to be boring and Anglican and say yes it is, <laughs> um, because I think there is, there is that dynamic, isn't there? Um, the first, the first place to begin is um, the recognition that in the New Testament um, there wasn't such really an idea of me by myself, though it was always corporate. So whenever Paul says you, 
he does mean you and not you. I mean, that's the language that is always being used. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he means all of you. Um, and there's a glorious icon, actually, of Jesus carrying his cross with lots and lots and lots of people behind him carrying their crosses. And there is something kind of really powerful about the corporateness of that. So I would say, yes, <coughs> there is a personal element because we cannot be together without being there ourselves. It's, you can't just say, well, they can all do it and I don't need to. But at the same time, there is a really important dynamic of the fact that together we act in taking up our, our crosses and giving up those things that we believe to be really important to ourselves. So yes, to social justice, to trying to change the world, to um, taking on suffering in ways that um, are kind of challenging and kind of thought-provoking as well as kind of more, the more obvious ways. One of the uh, pastors, theologians that I admire very much, of course, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm. uh, who wrote a lot about the cost of discipleship. Um, and I love the story that he was once sitting at a cafe outside when a, a Nazi band went by and uh, everybody stood up to give the Nazi salute, uh, including Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. but his friend stayed seated and looked up and said, Dietrich, what the hell are you doing? We must die for the cause against this. And Bonhoeffer said, yes, we must, but not sitting at a cafe where we will be completely unnoticed for it. <laughs> I love that idea that it's no good just going out and say, I'm going to take on the cost of it. Truth has its moments. Mm. Uh, and um, I saw that very much when in America, when I was writing a splash of words on sabbatical, um, a black guy had been shot. The Black Lives Matter movement came and laid a shrine and they wrote a poem onto card and it simply said, they tried to bury us. They forgot we are seeds. They tried to bury us, but they forgot we are seeds. And I thought, my goodness me, there's a sermon for Good Friday. Yes. <laughs> uh, they tried to bury us, they forgot we are seeds, but actually it's a poem that goes back, uh, it comes from a, a Greek gay writer who then wrote uh, uh, about that line and then it was used by indigenous Mexicans in mm. protest. So there is a, an image around being buried and coming to new life that's actually utterly political and uh, I'm, I'm fed up of sleepy, snoring Christianity. <laughs> and I think if, if we are found wanting in the present climate, we are going to be deeply ashamed as a church because I think the present climates across the world at the moment are very worrying. And uh, as I saw in the paper the other day, if you ever ask yourself, if you've ever asked yourself what you would have done in Europe in 1930s on the rise of fascism, well, just ask yourself what you're doing now. Very good question. <laughs> well, we're coming to the end of the evening. Just perhaps one last question for each of you. Um, in the next few weeks, we'll be coming up to Good Friday. Many of us perhaps will be in church. We'll be singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that great hymn of Isaac Watts, looking at the cross. What does it mean to us? We may be kneeling in front of the cross or praying around it. Could you give us a thought to take with us for that moment when we survey the cross in that deeply 
momentous liturgical moment? I think the, cro the, the thought that I would want us to have there is how the cross is so enormous in its impact, so enormous in its theology, that one single idea cannot possibly begin to communicate what it's about. Podrick's um, fridge magnet comes to mind. That actually when we survey the cross, we need a multiplicity of images to help us. One of the things I often observe is that Paul's big verses about um, Jesus's death, Romans 3, 24 to 25, are his big moments where he, he kind of lays out what he thinks is going on. Um, I've counted various times, and I come up with different numbers each time, but I reckon he uses six to seven metaphors in those two verses. Um, and that's not even all the metaphors he uses about the cross in his writings. So um, when we <coughs> survey the wondrous cross, we need to survey it in all sorts of different ways and not just a single one. Metaphors, of course, are the religious person's language because it's the only language that acknowledges mystery. It, it says we have to say it, what we know, we have to say it is like something else because we don't have full access to the reality. So metaphor is a Christian uh, language. Uh, what would I say? I would quote um, Eric Fried, who was an Austrian poet, uh, and I think what he says in this very short poem, uh, I would say about lots of my faith, actually, but particularly about the cross. He wrote this. It is nonsense, says reason. It is what it is, says love. It is unhappiness, says reflection. It is nothing but pain, says fear. It is hopeless, says insight. It is what it is says love. It's ridiculous, says pride. It's frivolous, says caution. It's impossible, says experience. It is what it is, says love. I think Mark's going to um, close the evening for us by reading us another poem. The Coming by R.S. Thomas. And God held in his hand a small globe. Look, he said. The sun looked. Far off, as through water, he saw a scorched land of fierce color. The light burned there. Crusted buildings cast their shadows. A bright serpent, a river uncoiled itself, radiant with slime. On a bare hill, a bare tree saddened the sky. Many people held out their thin arms to it, as though waiting for a vanished April to return to its crossed boughs. The sun watched them. Let me go there, he said. Well, I'm sure you feel as I do, that my mind's really been expanded this evening with uh, this 
kaleidoscope of, of uh, imagery and paradox and multiple things to hold together. Um, so I do hope you'll go away with lots of things to meditate on in the coming days uh, and, and come back to and perhaps some of those poems to reread uh, and use as part of a Good Friday uh, observance. Um, we will be in a moment uh, opening the book stall so you can buy copies of both Paula's and Mark's books. They will be sitting over here to sign them if you want. Um, it just remains for me now to uh, thank both our speakers for coming tonight. Uh, I think we should give, show them a sign of our appreciation. Thank you. Welcome.